The Shinnecock are a nation of Native Americans made up of 12 Algonquian-speaking tribes. This nation occupied the territory between Long Island and Connecticut. Today, their descendants live on a 400-acre reservation in Southampton and have over 1,200 enrolled members. Mia visited the Shinnecock Reservation to do this interview with photographer and founder of Ma's BIPOC art studio, Jeremy Dennis, beadwork artist and dancer, Tanish Tremont, traditional singer, dancer, and artist, Standing Buffalo, Shane Weeks, and artist and educator, Denise Silva-Dennis. Welcome to the creative process. So first, this is part of an initiative celebrating the creative works of the region. You have some fantastic artists here, and I think that a lot of people don't realize now it's just beginning, November 1st, the beginning of uh, National Native American Heritage Month. A lot of people don't know about the history of the Shinnecock in the region, or even uh, a lot of Native American culture. I feel it my opinion is that it's not as celebrated as much as it should be, but each of you is is very um, deeply involved in changing that. Jeremy, could you tell me a little bit about your work? You just hung a new exhibition that you have. At- I just hung a new exhibit at the Rogers Memorial Library in the hopes of creating some awareness in the local community. Just in my own uh, work and research, I found that even our neighbors in Southampton sometimes don't know that we exist or choose not to acknowledge our existence. And so Tahanish? Yes, I'm Tahanish, and I've lived on the reservation pretty much all my life. Art has been such a big part of growing up and who we are as a people. It's how we express ourselves. So it's something that is just an everyday thing for us, but it's a way for us to build on our living culture and our living history and teach it to our children. I do mainly beadwork, and I learned from my mother who learned from her grandmother. So it's nice to have something that is rooted in tradition, but we also have our own individual expressions of that. And I just wanted to build on what Jeremy was saying about the presence in the community outside of the Shinnecock community. It's very important for us to share that in a way that people can relate to, something that can be difficult at times when it becomes political, especially because of you know how our land was taken from us. But there's so much more to who we are and so much beauty that we share in what we do. And Denise? Well, I am a um, painter and drawer and uh, also beadwork artist, and I like to incorporate the history somehow through the depictions. We went to a whaler's and the kind of whale that the men hunted was called the right whale along the Atlantic Ocean. And when the colonists first came, our people showed them how to go about hunting the whale as well. And then it became a big industry. So that's something that I like to incorporate in my work, reflect our history and culture. Another thing is uh, we're known as the wampum makers, and people have heard of wampum. They've heard of the nations up in the north, Haudenosaunee, or sometimes called the Iroquois people, and their treaty belts. But they don't always say exactly where those shells came from, and those shells can only be found along the Atlantic coast. So we also try to incorporate those teachings in our beadwork or in our artwork or in our photographs, something about our culture because through history we've been written out of history books, we have been written out of any programs, so it's nice to um, be acknowledged even though we're a tiny you know, um, group of people here, but we are very steadfast and very tenacious in holding on to our culture and passing it down to the next generation. And then there was something called the Shinnecock Native American Coalition. And it was actually centered right in this building where the young adults had formed it along with the Shinnecock Church and some of the leaders in the church. And the whole mission was to teach the culture and heritage to the children. So I actually would come down to one of the rooms here and I would sit and learn more about beadwork and it was actually uh, Tahanish's grandma who had this work that she had done on a loom and that, you know, that just made me want to learn more about beadwork. 
It's beautiful. And, and Jeremy was sharing on the, the way here, he was saying how his own work deals with the 17th century, so that's going quite far back in our American history. And uh, that he is uh, fortunate enough to be able to draw upon the immense ancestral research that you've done and that you have almost like instant recall of stories and close relations, distant relations and their biographies. And um, I'm just thinking about how few descendants of American settlers can do that. I mean, you see now there's a huge a hunger. We were talking about the heritage testing, but how few descendants of American settlers can, can really do that, who are really have that sense. They have this vague notion but what you all here, you have direct links and direct traditions that have been passed on and, and, and that deep sense of place. So it's very special. And if, if you talk a little bit about your process from the beadwork to the photography to um, painting and, and the different things that were passed on to you and how you make it your own through your practice. Well, I started really getting into beadwork because I was a dancer. I do uh, shawl dance. I don't okay. know if you've seen that. Uh-huh. It's a contemporary style. Yeah. And as a child, I have five other siblings, so it was a pretty large family. And uh, I just, I wanted a new outfit, and my mom always had, you know, other children to think about. So I kind of just had to learn on my own to make sure that I had the clothing that I needed. And through that, I learned how to do my own stuff, learned how to help my siblings, and I just keep it going. Now I make my children's regalia. Mm-hmm. I do applique and leather work. Applique is ribbon work mm-hmm. and bead work as well. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where it came out of. And then for more of like a business mm-hmm. and more of my personal interests, I do jewelry. Wow. So that's what I create. And you, if you see my website, that's yeah. got mostly jewelry on there. Yeah, well, that's a kind of art that people can wear, and it's very transportable, and it's also like an heirloom as well that you can pass on. So that's nice. But I also saw some of your beautiful kind of special sh- shirts. You Could you describe those? Yeah, I do ribbon shirts. Uh-huh. And ribbon shirts are, they're pretty universal mm-hmm. across Native America. Yeah, I, ha- I have, like, I have a little baby shawl from when I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's something, that's the ribbon work I do. Yeah. My mom also is a quilter and a mm-hmm. sewer, so I learned that again from her, mm-hmm. and it's just something I enjoy making. Mm-hmm. And so, Jeremy, now the exhibition that you're launching, to tell us about it and some of the stories that informed those works, those photographs. Well, the, um, the installation I put up today in the uh, library combines two different projects that I hope will eventually kind of come together in one spot in the future. One of them is titled On This Site, and it's site-specific Native American histories. And the project's very flexible. You can bring it to different towns throughout Long Island, and it's always relevant, even though it's all Native American history. People recognize the landmarks and some of the places they drive by, and they, they automatically have a curiosity. And uh, the other work is just simply titled Stories, and it represents oral stories, everything from oral stories that were passed on through generations to written texts in history books. And like so many people give oral histories a bad rep and then they give so much credibility to history but I think that there's somewhere in between that we can see both of those aspects and I hope that it represents both of those uh, ways of telling stories yeah I was just looking the images are very powerful and I don't could you just describe like one of the stories that has been in photographs why those stories spoke to you one image that's in the library right now mm-hmm. um, I'm always so surprised by what images people are driven to and there's this one image that I think is really interesting but not a lot of people appreciate it without the story behind it it's simply titled um, Manitou Hill and it has this um, woman who is um, drinking from a spring and the story is in Plainsview, New York which is up the island in Nassau County a leader of a uh, tribe was leading their people and they were struggling through thirst and the great creator instructed this leechum to shoot the arrow in the air and wherever it landed just dig there and you'll find a fresh water spring so they did that and they found the spring 
And interestingly, through historical documents, you can still find both the hill, which still retains its name, and also where the spring was located. And historians say that a local high school built over the spring, and the hill is now a very small park in the area. But Mm -hmm. I think that being able to link back very solid locations with oral history is what I aim to do in the first place. I think that's really interesting. It, well, it's beautiful. It helps us uh, see the beauty and, you know, honor the history and the people who've gone before. And and so, Denise, I was interested in, you brought up the, the history of whaling, which is also very important. I was interested in it. You said that the how to whale had been really taught to the settlers by your tribe, and I was wondering what's the difference because I know it, big and you know Native American practice like the whole person, the whole the environment, the 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 whole animal is often respected and honored. Well, like was there a difference with the way you know the industrialized whaling as it came to be? Well, part of the religion of the Shinnecock people was the fin and the tail of the whale. Mm-hmm. And when the settlers or colonists came, they were like, oh, you're not going to worship this whale mm-hmm. anymore or have it in your ceremonies anymore because they wanted us to become Christians. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have a church, the Shinnecock Presbyterian Church. It's the oldest mission church in the United States. But through the decades, there was so much whaling going on that eventually the whales, you know, just, you know, there weren't hardly any, and people from Shunnecock had to go further and further out, and as the industry grew and people became rich, like the captains in Southampton or all along the East Coast, oftentimes it would be Shunnecock people or Wampanoag people, anyone along the coast, Narragansett, who would actually be the first mates on these ships. But it's, it's really important for us to continue to think of the whale. And um, I had actually done a painting on the outside of this community center, uh-huh. and it's kind of a timeline. And mm-hmm. it starts out with a corn uh, mother who's planting the corn with the baby on her back. And then the next scene is the Shunnecock village, because we've always lived here. A lot of people don't understand that with reservations, you know, there's this concept that people were, you know, put there and placed there. And even though we were pushed out to this peninsula, this is still our ancestral land. We weren't removed from hundreds of miles away. Mm -hmm. This has always been our place. And uh, the uh, mural on the outside of the community center shows the whale, shows the men going out there to get it in dugout canoes. And the type of whale was called the right whale. And it would oftentimes just come along the beach. So it was very easy for the um, tribe to go out there and to um, get it and bring it in. And it's like the whole concept that we have to keep alive of sharing and working together as a community. Um, there, there was once a, a young warrior, he passed away tragically, and one of the things that he said was, it's, it's something like, it's the person who just goes and goes fishing for the day and then comes home and eats uh, by themselves, you know, and kind of look down on that person. But it's the real warrior, it's the real leader who goes and gets the whale and brings it back and shares it with everyone. And then I, I see with Jeremy, the way he's sharing his stories with everyone, it's for like everyone to come and um, be a part. It's not like, oh, we're the artists and we're the only, you know, the only ones who have talent. We want to share our talent. And then I see with Tanish, with her beadwork and how she uses the medallion of the Shinnecock Nation. And so many people, you know, want to get that for their children or for themselves to show pride. So that's another really important reason why it's important just to have arts and culture and use it as a teaching mm-hmm. tool. I think that's such a good point because the arts really are a very powerful vehicle for bringing people together fellow artists, but just the community, you know? Because I think that we all started off really, when we were children, I remember, we were all artists, and we were all, that was our instinct, you know, whether it's visual or dancing or music or something, that's our kind of instinct. So we're just joined now by Shane. So do you want to discuss more, we were talking about the whaling and the hunting. Sure. Um... First of all, uh, as a formal introduction, um, 
akwe bijiki na bawit and dasuis bijiki ndo dem sinakagno wache and shinabeninu and what i just said was uh hello uh, standing buffalo is my name i am of the buffalo clan i am an anishinaabe man from shinnecock and uh, that's in the shinnecock language and uh, yeah so i guess it all started for me now i'm just being the connection with the water when i was about 7 years old I, my dad was always a hunter but i kind of dragged him fishing and so my connection with the water has been really strong since i was about 7 years old and you know historically like Denise uh, was just saying you know we were whalers you know we were paddlers and a lot of people don't know our can- canoes could hold almost like 100 people you know there's documentation of our canoes holding 80 plus people on long island engineering yeah. feet i mean right. because the tools that they were yeah, made right, with right. are not industrialized yeah too. well the traditional way making a canoe is to have a log right mm-hmm. and now there are no longer trees big enough mm-hmm. to sustain that and what you would do is get embers coals hot coals from the fire and just lay it along the log and as you're laying it somebody's sitting there scraping it out as it burns down and somebody else is putting water on the sides so that way as it's going down it doesn't burn through the sides mm-hmm. and um it takes a long time and you shouldn't stop the fire should just keep going and going and going the one that was made here recently in the last 10 years i guess was only a two man canoe but it took i think it was like 4 days mm-hmm. at the at the museum without stopping the fire mm-hmm. just digging it out and what we would do is we would go out there several canoes and there would, people would have harpoons and mm-hmm. once a whale was spotted they would go out there and harpoon the whale and the actual spear that would come out you, there was a, a part of the spear that would come out and stay in the whale and that was attached to a line that was attached to huge logs all in a row and what that would do is as the whale would dive it would keep the whale afloat you know so you wouldn't lose the whale as it was as it was continuing to dive it would it would get resistance right tiring the whale out then eventually it would float to the surface and that's what would help you find the whale coming back and for us uh the whale it, it really sustained our people throughout a long time. One of the old stories of how the whale came to be here in the the, the northeast is there was once a giant named Mashup and we were given the whale by Mashup when he would get the whale and and pick it up by its tail and s- smash it against the the cliffs which is now called the Bloody Cliffs on Nantucket Island. Mm-hmm. And so that was legend, you know, here in the northeast. And so not only would we go out there and harvest whales though, we would also harvest beach whales that would naturally just wash ashore and even today now even though we don't use the whales the same way we we did in the past in recent years there's been a lot of beached whales mm-hmm. and at each beaching I try to do a ceremony mm-hmm. for the whale and um what I attribute that to is just the whale population in general is is rising right and so that's something even if something's bountiful there's still a way that you have to balance even how you harvest something mm-hmm. there has to be a balance in the way you take something and then you have to give back you know that has to be a uh, a conscious effort right and yeah even in our tradition like say if i was going to take a uh, a rock from the beach right and use that rock for for a ceremony or something like that like a swell mm-hmm. ceremony or something we we will offer tobacco mm-hmm. for that rock for that stone mm-hmm. just an acknowledgement of giving back mm-hmm. you know and, and to always remember that and that seems to be because we were talking before you an integral part of Shinnecook but just a greater native american culture this idea that if you don't take you honor everything you don't throw the it's not a wasteful tradition mm-hmm. and i think that we really could learn so much i mean our wasteful western ways are mm-hmm. not sustainable and you know i'm very keenly interested in, in what other ways that we can learn from these traditions that are really very beautiful and always in uh, honor of the environment and i'm just wondering what we were discussing before what 
are so because as it's National Native American Heritage Month, and yet so many parts of American society just aren't as aware as as they should be of you know the the Native history. So for each of you, what are things that you feel the rest of America should know about your own culture, or just you know what's important to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess it's kind of a long story, right? Because uh, everything in our culture is a long story. So for us, just to start off with, the most important thing for other people to realize is that we're still here, you know? And because in history, if you look in the history books and you look in, the, in all the old documents, it's always somebody else writing about us. It's always somebody else writing about what they think they saw and their interpretation of it. You know, it's, you don't you don't hear recordings of us talking about ourselves or anything like that. And um, like even in Southampton, I didn't learn about Shinnecock in Southampton High School. I had to go to my elders and do a whole lot of research mm-hmm. to know the history that I know today. It's not just common knowledge, and it's it's not common knowledge here on Shinnecock, and it's not mm-hmm. common knowledge anywhere else in in the world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's not written down, so it's right. yeah, exactly. So one of, the, one of the biggest things is that what I call intu- institutionalized colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's this, there's this concept that is taught as common knowledge throughout all of America, you know? I was just recently talking to a friend from Canada, and uh, she was saying that in her textbook, it said that the Native Americans in the United States, they knew the colonists were coming, so they just left and made room. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, so these are things that, that people are still being, still today being taught mm-hmm. in, in across the Americas. So it's, it's really important for people to understand that we're, st- we're still here. A lot of people also don't understand that it's not just one big Native America. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people would say, you know, oh, you're Native American, you think this, that, and the third. But no, that could be like the Navajo. The Navajo are very different than Shinnecock different ways, different history, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really important to, to realize that just in the United States alone, there are like 568 now um, federally recognized tribes, and that means 568 different tribal governments, different sovereign nations, right? And there's even more that are st- just state recognized, not mm-hmm. not recognized by the federal government. So, you know, it's it's... It's really, really important for people to to kind of start reaching out to those local communities, those local indigenous communities, and just see if what they have to say. Mm-hmm. That's, that's I think going to be the key in in the future. Yeah. yeah, I think we have to do what we can do with your exhibitions, with your traditions and festivals or fairs, mm-hmm. just to counteract these acts of erasure. I think one thing that we hope this Native American Heritage Month will bring with its awareness is also respect. And I think that it lacks a lot for the Native community just because of the way that we've been stereotypically portrayed in movies and films and books, even on the Halloween rack. It starts with respect. If you don't have that respect for a culture, from wherever they are, there's never going to be an understanding of who they are. So I think that's one thing that we really hope to help people understand. Just to add to what Shane and Tahanish mentioned in regard to Native American Heritage Month, I think that so many Americans are just starting from the, like the base or the zero point in Native American history. So I think that starting at the local level is really enlightening and enriching when learning about Native American heritage. Like you don't need to know every single um, battle or every single treaty or every single Native American historical moment. You can just start from there and I think by even beginning you're going to have a natural curiosity and everything else will come to you as you want to learn more and just um, appreciate more of your own personal history no matter where you are. If you're um, occupying America, you're mm-hmm. automatically interacting with Native American lineage and presence. And specifically to what Shane said, that we're still here, that needs to be acknowledged. I, I tried to approach that in all of my work, but I came to realize that just by being an artist and being a Native American artist, just creating something fulfills that requirement. I don't need to have content that is 
Native American iconography or symbolism to fulfill that as well. And I think that the more people kind of go down that path in indigenous communities, the more positivity there'll be, the more uh, connections and relationship buildings there, there will be. So I try to continue that in my work. We're all part of a web, like in mm-hmm. the dream catcher. Everybody yeah. knows what a dream catcher is. There's so many people who hang them, became a fad, but do mm-hmm. you really know that that symbolizes that we're all part of the web and whatever you do to the web when it's wrong, then it's going to eventually come back and affect you because we're all connected. But um, also going back to what um, we'd like people to learn about Native Americans. I was an educator in actually the Southampton School District for a little over 21 years and probably fear because um, of the outside and maybe fear from the inside to know the outside. So there needs to be more, you know, reaching out more of an understanding. But we're doing that like through the Guild Hall or the Watermill Center or the SAC Center or Southampton College, it, it, something is going on and with you even coming mm-hmm. here, where as the artists and people who want to communicate with the outside and have something to bring for this mutual understanding, because some of my non-Native friends have told me about this, that there's a fear of the people on the reservation, because when you know, whenever there's mostly a news account, yeah. it's always a horrible thing, you know, criminals, so the perception and the education, it just needs to be more, go out like a little drop in the water mm-hmm. and just the waves just keep going out so more and more people can come to an understanding. Mia had the amazing opportunity to interview these amazing artists from the Shinnecock tribe and I really think that they embody how art and history go hand in hand and how important art is to our history. Everyone knows that we live on stolen Native American land and I think everyone is completely right in this interview when they say that respect and knowledge is one of the most important things that we can do for them. We need to acknowledge where we stand, where we live, and how we got here. I think that art is so important and respecting the art that they create is even more important. Art contains history and art contains stories. I think that every form of art that these artists do are so beautiful and so important and acknowledging and respecting that this art comes from a very important place to them and has a history is something that we all need to recognize and acknowledge. Art is so beautiful and so amazing and to be able to have your history and art is something that most people can't say. I think that the erasure of Native American history is something that Native Americans still deal with today and are still trying to fight against. So I think acknowledging that their oral stories are correct and important and acknowledging that their art has history and that their art portrays history that is so important to them needs to be respected. Art is something so beautiful and something that makes people feel stuff. I think if people took the time to look at art in a way that portrays history, people would have a much better understanding of Native American history and what Native Americans have gone through in the course since colonizers have come to this land. I think that art is something that everyone should appreciate And I think that art comes in all different forms. And I think that is shown by the types of art that these artists do, like beadwork, dance, photography, even education can be a type of art. And I think that it's so important to acknowledge this art and to respect it and to be thoughtful when you're looking at it and acknowledge what is happening in the art and why the art is the way it is. So, um... Back to uh, Jeremy's point, you know, about about occupation and kind of also what you were talking about, historical trauma is, is, is the words, historical trauma, generational trauma, and just the, the lack of knowledge of true Native American history in America. Part of why people don't understand the history is because of how the media portrays it, as Denise was saying. and. And for a long time, and several, several occasions, it was portrayed as there were no more Indians. Indians are extinct, you know, there are no more. And that was not only done, um, especially out west, through war and literal physical genocide in terms of killing, but even starting here on the east coast was called uh, the residential schools. And the residential schools were where the, the governments would come in and take uh, Native American babies 
and children and put them in residential schools. And they would cut their hair, they would force them into Christianity, they would force them to speak English, they would get abused if, if they did any of the above. Practice their culture, practice their traditions, their songs, their language, not dress in English clothing. And that, that started here in the late 1600s. And it started here in Southampton in the late 1600s with what was called the Great Awakening. And that was when the first Shinnecock reverends and, and churches were established here in Southampton. And it didn't end in the Americas, well, North America um, and Canada until the 90s. That was something that was, that was very, very recent. And uh, there are a lot of people that I've met, people that went through those, those residential schools you know, and are still hesitant to practice their culture today. So when we talk about who we are as a people, we have to kind of reclaim that as a community ourselves. And it's really important for us to remember where we came from in order to, to be able to move forward. Because the, the whole concept behind that was to make us assimilate, was to make us extinct. One way, either through death, through literal extermination, or through assimilation. And uh, that's something that was done up until very, very recently, you know. Well, that's one question that we didn't address, and, and so I often ask people is, what, what can we do for our education system? How can we improve upon it? So it embraces all cultures, mm-hmm. that embraces creativity, embraces these things that are being neglected. And what do you feel? Um, one of the best ways that I see bridging those cultural gaps, historic gaps, is bringing in somebody from that culture. Right, bring in somebody from those communities that are specific to that history, if that history is still living history, right? And to literally have somebody talk about themselves, that, that I see is the best way that works, you know? Mm-hmm. And instead of somebody else try, trying to explain the history, most people from history are still living, you know? And it, mm-hmm. it's, it's just the next generation. I think that's one of the, the keys, is, is reaching out to those communities. And in many uh, cases, there are children from those cultures that aren't represented by the uh, faculty. So to have someone from their own community come in, and I know my cousin Denise has done a ton of talks, especially in November. That's probably the busiest month for us. But yeah, just to have our own voice heard and to have our children see our faces there makes them feel included and it creates that safe place for them to feel comfortable in their identity. In my mind, in my personal experience growing through the public school system and private schools and kind of academia, I always remember like the field trips. Like every day you would learn something new when you go to school, but then you go to a field trip and that's something you never forget. And I think that specific to Native American history, land is so vital to understanding who we are. Even if you assimilate us um, through language and religion and history and make us forget everything we've done, you can still have a link back to who you are just through where you came from and acknowledging that. So I think that if students had that same experience, that would be life-changing for them. As an educator, it's really important from the top down, from the superintendent of schools, Board of Education, to really support that whole idea of Native American curriculum, which Southampton had started, which was fairly recently. I was one of the curriculum writers for the Southampton School District, and I focused in on the whole idea of Thanksgiving and how it really is like, yeah, thanks for what giving us a disease. <laughs> well, that's how <laughs> yeah. I wrote mine part and stealing our land. But um, it needs to be continued and we started, it was a group of people from Shenandoah who was writing this curriculum and it was really geared for kindergarten through fourth grade and then it stopped but we were um, told that it would go on to the middle school, it would go on to the high school but it hasn't gone on to the middle school and it hasn't gone on to the high school because those stories are going to get really upsetting and they're going to be sad the kids from Shinnecock, though, they're going to feel, like Tahanish was saying, they're going to feel so empowered mm-hmm. by hearing about themselves. And like Shane was saying, to have actual Shinnecock people go in and teach them, that was what the recommendation was for mm-hmm. in, our, in our specific district. 
Whether it's going to go on, I don't know, but that is going to be, that's going to turn. It could, you know, could have influence to turn the whole community around. I guess they don't want to continue because maybe it would make the kids who are non-Shinnecock feel guilty. Yeah, um, this is shame, guilt, guilt, shame, yeah. guilt. Um, oh, is that really what happened, you know, to your people? But then they'll be, you know, in the other way, they'll be, you know, understanding also with that. Because there's the local, the Shinnecock, and then there's this greater, as you mentioned, there's a kind of pan-Native American, people who aren't in school. You know, what are some foundational books that you find are an introduction? Well, one of my favorite writers was always Vine Deloria Jr. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I liked his stuff is he broke down why we feel the way we do about things. Like, yes, you're mad that they took our land, but how did that happen and why did that happen? So he goes through the Dawes Act, you know, the Reorganization Act. He goes through a chronological... Uh, view of Native history through Native perspective and I found that to be very useful to just get a basic understanding of how things are the way way they are now. Well in terms of books that have helped me are like John Strong books who was an author, a local author, who wrote a lot of history on Long Island indigenous people and history, Gaynell Stone books but what really, really helped me as a Shinnecock person understand the history is by traveling out to different reservations all over the country and Canada and talking with people who went through the same things and where they were at in their historical cycle, in the colonization cycle, and in, in tribes that are similar to ours in terms of culturally. But that's, that's, that's what really, really helped me out is, is, is actually visiting different tribes because a lot of our history it's not in the books and and like 90% of what's in the books isn't right and I just want to add on to those recommendations Uh, Tanish mentioned one book that I I haven't read but I'll put on my reading list but it reminds me of another book by Eduardo Duran called uh, Native American Postcolonial Psychology Mm. and my godfather Keith is a psychiatrist and he recommended me the book because it, it talks about contemporary issues and reservations like why is there substance abuse why is there abuse of power domestic violence and I try to share that book as much as I can and Shane also mentioned John Strong just to give him more background he lived in the Shinnecock Hills five minutes from the reservation and he was a uh, professor at Stony Brook University in Southampton and he comes from a perspective that's very uh, I don't know he's kind of like an, an enigma of a person because at first glance, you don't know why he did all this work. I, I would say he dedicated his whole life to researching us, the Montaukit, the and the other tribes of Long Island. And he, I always ask myself, why did he do all that for us? And I always refer to his books, and I think that he would be a good example for every American to become that individual to dedicate their time to something beyond themselves. Yeah, and um, also with the Gaynell Stone, all these are professors, and sometimes those books are hard to find because they're through the Suffolk County Historical Society, and they oftentimes run out of funding, you know, in order to produce those books. But I have so many collections, and like how Shane was saying, he goes, you know, goes out to different ceremonies or talks to different people because my family is also from a tribe called the Hassanamisco Nipmunk in Massachusetts, Grafton, Massachusetts. So we were taught, like from little tiny children, this is your mom's reservation on Shinnecock, this is your father's reservation um, in Massachusetts, and I'm one of the six kids, the youngest one, so I didn't have to do as much work as Tahanish had to do, being the oldest. But my oldest sister, you know, did it and just brothers and sisters and them really blazing the trail, my parents telling stories, aunts and uncles, grandparents, the oral history is so important, like you were saying, Jeremy. You know, a lot of people don't oh, you don't exist anymore, but you know, we do exist because we do have tangible places that we go. We know that there's special places. We know that there's sacred places. We have a feeling inside. Um, it's really interesting because through the years leading up to this time, this particular time, 
Shane was researching and I watched him research. Dahanish, I watched her develop. I watched Jeremy, but everybody was like kind of scattered, you know, doing different in different places, raising a family, or you're going hunting, focusing on that in the seasons, or Jeremy, you know, he was away in Pennsylvania. And even my uh, daughter, Callie, she was away um, doing legal work to understand more the history of the tribe. But reading everybody's information and, and through the internet or you know comments or just talking and working on projects, that's how we learn more. And one thing I wanted to piggyback on what Shane was also saying about schools is there was a school here, right where the community center is now, there was an um, old school, it burnt down twice, and then it finally burnt down, the last time was in the 1960s, and it was actually used as a community center, like what mm-hmm. this place is now, the Shanehawk Community Center. And um, there's so many of our great aunts and uncles, people who were born like in the 20s and the 30s, went, and they still, some of them are still alive, went to that school. And I... They never learned anything, because I ask them sometimes about, you know, what did you learn there, being an educator? And and I remember my father-in-law, Jeremy's grandfather, saying, you know, we didn't learn what we needed to learn, because once we went down to the public schools, because it only went up to eighth grade, and then they did high school in the Southampton Public School, they had to take this test, and the test, they're like, but we didn't learn those things on Shinnecock. But what they did learn was how to to be bound to one each other and how to depend on each other. And also talking about the residential schools, my mother-in-law, her and her brother, were taken away to a school, to a place at one time on Shunnecock, away from their parents. And she didn't talk about that until she was in her 80s. She never spoke about it. I never would have known. And a lot of people from Shunnecock, you start hearing these stories about being taken away from their parents and crying in these schools and having, okay, they had that, that bound to each other, the binding to each other. And you only hear it, I only started learning about it was um, at funerals mm-hmm. and wakes. And they would talk about, we were children and we wanted to go home so bad. We wanted to go back to Shunnecock so bad and we couldn't. We were, like some people were up at the Thomas Indian School. There was one little girl, she died out in Pennsylvania at a school. Um, and with that, you don't learn the traditions. You don't learn all your, your language. You know, what's the use of having a language? What's the use of learning about the Shinnecock language? But as Shane did in his introduction, mm-hmm. what he's learned, what Tahanish has learned, what Jeremy has learned through Tahanish's mother, Tina, and it's just so empowering to say those words because they're they're sacred and they're holy to us. And once we start communicating with each other, it's it's just such a you know cool thing. And yeah. I think the beauty of that yeah. is that we are the people of this land, yeah. and so this is where that comes from, mm-hmm. and that's why it's special and it's mm-hmm. sacred. We do have people in our community that are non-native that have learned our ways but they've also come uh, very humbly and with a lot of respect for what it is that they're learning Mm -hmm. so to us that's a reason why things are kept very close Mm -hmm. yeah you you don't want it to become something other than it is I guess some of the other references too are like uh, the town records Mm -hmm. Um, oh that's important that's that's been a big resource uh, for your book yeah for for me I've spent nights, you know, just mm-hmm. reading through all the town records and, and all the excerpts on Shinnecock or Montauk or, um, you know, different tribes on the East End and and kind of, you know, like I said before, a lot of what you read is the interpretation, right? So you kind of have to decipher what it is they think they saw mm-hmm. and then I'll go reference somebody else who maybe, you know, say they're trying to talk about a ceremony and saying, oh, they did it because the evil spirit, blah, 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 blah. Then I'll go talk to a different tribe or somewhere that, that still practices those that same ceremony and get the true story of it. That it's not the evil spirit, it's actually, you know, the great so-and-so, you know. It's just like with, there's, there's a, these stones called the Devil's Rocks. They were called the Devil's Rocks by the colonists, but to us, they're sacred. And they, there's a whole there's a whole story behind it, and it has nothing to do with evil or the devil or anything like that, you know. But it's just the depiction and the interpretation of what the settlers wanted to call it, you know. And if you uh, 
read like the Southampton Town records, you could see their kind of insight on it, and it's in some instances they'll still call us they called us the sometimes Christians, right? It was like sometimes they they, they practice Christianity, but then they return back to their savage state and da 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 da. You know, so that's like mm-hmm. that's just you, some some things you have to decipher, you know, in order to get pull out the truth from it. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's uh, the trick in in figuring out the history mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. You know? And also part of being Christian and the conversion is people weren't necessar- didn't necessarily just, oh, I want to be a Christian now. I want to believe in Jesus and God. But it was that if you didn't do it, then you could get shipped out to the West Indies somewhere. If you resisted back then, they'll just like cut your tongue off if you speak your language. Just you know, horrible, horrible, burn you alive. Just terrible, enslave you. So what people did, I had read once that okay, people converted because I know from my father's side in Massachusetts, they were called praying towns, and that's the name, Hassan and Miskel is a praying town reservation. And they converted because they didn't want to get killed. And it all goes like there are people from there who were involved in King Philip's War, and they went and fought that battle, and they came back to Hassan and Miskel to try to, you know, hide out because... So much was being stolen from them. Villages were being set on fire. People think, oh, that just happened out west, you know, at Wounded Knee. But no, it started here. And it goes back to that fear, fear of the devil worshipers, fear of, you know, these people who were in the woods at night and aren't they afraid of that the devil's going to get them? And like, no, we're going to do our full moon ceremonies even mm-hmm. back then, and we still do things yeah. like that. And that's, that's also the direct cause for the gap in the link of cultural history, where our traditions were always oral and passed down from one generation to the next. But there was a point in time, and it wasn't just here, it was, it's, it's still evident all across the Americas, is even South America, is that if, if uh, they were to pass it down, that their children and grandchildren would be treated just the way they were. So they didn't pass it down on purpose because they didn't want their kids to be treated that way. You know, yeah. It's a survival right. imperative. Right. Yeah. My great grandfather, he grew up hearing Shinnecock around. His aunts would speak it, mm-hmm. but they didn't teach him because they mm-hmm. didn't want him to live backwards or to be treated differently. Mm-hmm. They wanted him to make it. So, mm-hmm. And funny enough, the uh, Bible is how we are revitalizing mm-hmm. our language today. It's the first yeah. thing to be translated. Mm-hmm. And the devil wasn't a, wasn't a word for us. We didn't have a word for that. That wasn't a concept for us. Mm-hmm. So they kind of had to like piece it together. And like you said, when you're researching, it's never just one truth. It's There's a lot of different sides and perspectives. And you really have to do the research like around it to understand. Because in that Bible, our language was translated, but also our culture the cultural understanding of it so it's not word for word so that's you know kind of pulls it out even farther and that's why it takes so long to pick it apart and find these other perspectives in there years generations and one thing that i will point out is that in today's society like just in our generation literally mm-hmm. is is that there are a lot more people that are open to hearing our history and hearing our story. And and that's something that that has to be taken into consideration, I think, is that there are people that are willing to accept the the past and willing to hear our story and willing to share our story, whereas half a generation ago that wasn't the case. There were a lot of people that just didn't want to hear it, you know, and uh, that's not the case today, which is very important and and very significant moving forward, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, even in our own community, like that drive to revitalize the language and the culture, that's something that on a small scale was happening before, but now it is more open. And that, I think, has to do with the effects of historical trauma. The fact that we didn't want to be looked down Mm -hmm. upon in a certain way and our experiences through the residential schools. I recently went to Carlisle Indian School. Just, I was 
on vacation with my family and that's where a lot of my family went through my Hopi and Ho-Chunk family and I found records of my great-great-grandfather who went to it was a four-year program he was in and it took him nine years to graduate because he ran away <sighs> as much as he could possibly run away mm-hmm. so you can only imagine like what that child was going through mm-hmm. and how he made it through And uh, a historian that I was speaking to about it, she told me that she felt that the residential schools failed as a whole because the natives that lived through the trauma, the abuse, they went back to their home communities. They also went to the cities, but they also went back home, a lot of them. And to me, it's kind of like a cancer. It's something that you take the children's language, you teach them different ways, and then implant them in their home communities. So all the other kids that didn't go to boarding school are now feeling the effects of it. And even, even, uh, even during that time of the Great Awakening, what the Shinnecott reverends would do was hide our history in the church and hide our teachings in the church. And that evidence of that is still um, alive today because even the strawberry festival the strawberry festival is portrayed as coming from the church but in reality it's a traditional ancient ceremony but it, it had to be hidden in the church to survive you know? and that that was generational that was hidden in the church through generations And but interestingly enough though I don't know what I'd really like to find out is how there were two whalers that were not actually Shinnecott or indigenous whalers from the New England area that did not end up as indentured servants, but that became captains, you know, and that's that's something I've never, one was my great, great, great grandfather, Ferdinand Lee, and he was a whaling captain that sailed all over the world to New Zealand, Japan, the island, everywhere, you know, that's something I want to figure out how did he do that. Thank you so much for adding your voices to the creative process. The creative process is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchberger. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anatolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.